And welcome to another edition of Let Me Tell You Something's Match of the Week, an ongoing series within the Let Me Tell You Something canon, in which myself, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, take it in turns to pick a match from the wide world of wrestling in the historical periods, from as early as there's been recorded footage, to as recently as being put up as a TikTok. We haven't done either of those things yet, nor will we ever do so, so I've kind of contradicted myself already. <laughs> Where are you going with this? (laughs) Never disrupt my stream of consciousness, Simon. Oh, heaven forfend. It's like being pulled out of the Matrix without warning. But what we are talking about is a match following on from last week's edition, where we had Antonio Inoki defending his NWF heavyweight title against Billy Robinson. We're talking about two figures that were prominent opponents of Inoki at various points in New Japan but this time they're facing off against each other and not in the New Japan ring not technically anyway Simon what are we talking about today we're talking a match that takes place between Stan Hansen Japanese based mainstay and Hulk Hogan Hulk bloody Hogan well before he was a star in America he was a star in Japan Ichiban Hogan in 1982 and 83 was pretty much the top guy Jin in wrestling in Japan at the time. He was the top guy. He was put over Antonio Inoki when we were talking about potential matches to do that could have killed two birds with one stone with what we wanted to cover. We could have very easily had Hogan and Inoki in the 1983 IWGP League final where Hogan technically became the first ever IWGP champion. Lineage is a bit more circumspect when mm, um, okay. More up for debate until the actual official championship itself really comes into being in 1987. But the bright lights, the big bucks, and the domestic life being the top ace of WWF in America was enough eventually by mid-84 for Hogan to play his trade back in America pretty much full-time right up until this... I think this was his first time back in Japan. I might be wrong. But I think it's his first time back in Japan since his last run there in 1984 where he had the rematch with Antonio Inoki for the IWGP League 84. But, again, as we were talking then, politics being what it was, Hogan lost by count-out in that match. And we'll get more into politics as well in, in how this match goes. Well, I was going to yeah, mention, because obviously doing some of the backstage groundwork that we do do for these recordings... We mentioned groundwork? Shh. <laughs> They don't know. You barely watch the matches. <laughs> How old are you? You mentioned that this was a joint WWE All Japan and New Japan card. Now, considering what we briefly covered in the previous episode with the hatred between two of the prominent stars of All Japan and New Japan and just wrestling politics in general. I don't want to go all Steiner math, but when you add WWE into the mix, it spells disaster at a booking-based sacrifice. So so how does this come about? It comes about because WWF wanted to put on a big show in Japan. Vince had always wanted to go into the Japanese market. He essentially wanted to overtake New Japan and All Japan with whatever would have been WWF Japan. Never was able to get that foothold in. And in order to do these big matches, they were always, at this time, co-productions. 
the year after this, instead of working with All Japan and New Japan, they strike a deal with Super World of Sports, the new promotion being fronted by Ginokiru Tenru. And so Hulk Hogan, and they did these just after WrestleMania. This is like happening a couple of days after WrestleMania 6. I think WrestleMania 6 was the 1st of April 1990. This is the 13th of April. And yes, they, they essentially brought in All Japan and New Japan to help them fill out the cards so they didn't have to fly everyone over. They figured it would be more likely to get Japanese fans if they're, t- they're treated to some interpromotional dream matches. And less of a worry of certain guys losing to Japanese talent because it wasn't going to make it to American markets necessarily. So I'll run down the cards. Because as you'll see, you've got a six-man tag opening up all with All Japan talent. That's Joe Malenko, Dan Crawford, and Doug Furness against Samson Fuyuki, Toshiaki Kawada and Tatsumi Kitahara. Then we have a New Japan Junior singles match between Liger and Akira Nagami. Then it's an interpromotional tag team match where Jimmy Snooker and Tito Santana defeat Kenta Kabashi and Masanobu Fushi. <laughs> okay. Then we get another WWF vs. All Japan interpromotional match which sees... Bret Hart take on, and it's the only time he ever did, I believe, Tiger Mask 2, a.k.a. Mitsuharu Masawa. And they go to a 20-minute time limit draw, and the reason they picked Bret for that match was because he'd had history in New Japan in the early 80s of being one of Tiger Mask's other opponents alongside Dynamite Kid. Yeah, okay. Then we have another interpromotional match with the Great Kabuki facing Greg the Hammer Valentine. Then it's a WWF exhibition with Jake the Snake Roberts facing the Big Boss Man. Then it's an all-new Japan IWGP tag team title match between Masa Saito and Shinya Hashimoto against Chono and Choshu. Then it's an all-Japan plus WWF tag team match where Jumbo Saruta teams with Haku against Mr. Perfect and Rick Martel. And around the time the next year when it's Super World of Sports... WWF actually frequently loans Haku out to be a Gaijin star in SWS. Oh, okay. During that time. Then we have the biggest other interpromotion. Well, no, this is not the other biggest interpromotional match looking at this, but the other one that I've seen, which is Tenru facing off against Macho King Randy Savage with Sensational Sherry, and that is a whole lot of fun to watch. <laughs> and Tenru does go over Savage in that match. Then there's one of his first defenses of the WWF Championship, which is the Ultimate Warrior against Ted DiBiase. Apparently, the Japanese crowd did not take to Ultimate Warrior's shtick, is what we were told. Ah. Then it's another sort of interpromotional tag team match where Andre the Giant teams up with Giant Baba against Demolition, Axe and Smash. Non-title, because Axe and Smash have recently just won the tag titles from Andre and Haku, actually. WrestleMania 6. And then it was headlined by Hulk Hogan against Stan Hansen. Originally, they wanted it to be Terry Gordy, but Gordy refused to lose to Hogan. Ah! Meltzer, I think, is very harsh. He gives this match a mere three stars out of five. And I will say, I mean, it's only 12 and a half minutes. It's quite a different change of pace from the last match that we watched, the 60-minute technical masterpiece between Antonio Inoki and Billy Robinson. But they pack a lot into these 12 minutes and 30 seconds. Now, what were the things about Hogan in Japan that you wanted to see? And what were your reactions to it? And do you think you got all of it? Did it meet your expectations? Because I'll just say, first of all, I remember I watched this match as a kid. It was part of a Hulk Hogan compilation tape. Okay. 
always stu- is the only match I remember watching on that tape. Maybe on that tape there was a steel cage match he had with Andre the Giant at a thing called WrestleFest. I know I watched that on a Hogan compilation tape that I would have rented from a Blockbusters or a Titles or Choices video store. See, there's the generational gap. Just a quick aside. I had no idea the other two name brands of store were even a thing. I, I would After you said Blockbuster, my brain checked out. <laughs> There's also people, some people have video actions. I don't know if you ever saw any of those. No, I only ever saw Blockbuster. So this match always stuck out in my head because it was so unusual. And we'll go into more of that. This is not a standard Hogan in America match. We don't know enough necessarily yet of Hogan in Japan as to how much of a Hogan in Japan match. But it was clear there were differences. What did you expect and what did you see in comparison? I'm going to take you back a little bit to when I was a teenager growing up reading Power Slam. And it was one of the, it's, it's one of the letters that was sent in. Basically, the guy was like, oh, I was watching this match the other day from Japan and Hulk Hogan was in it. And he did a bloody Enziguri. What's going on here? Basically, was was the theme of the letter that was written in. And I can't remember the name of the staff member that responded to the letter. But it's like Hogan worked a very different style in Japan. And my exposure to Hulk Hogan has been just all of his stuff in America. And Hogan is... Hogan as a baby, as a, the red and yellow baby face was very formulaic before his change. And even when he changed to the NWO, because he wrestled, because he cheated against cheaters with like little eye pokes and back rakes you'd see sometimes. He, he didn't really have to change a lot of his style, weirdly, when he became a heel. So I hadn't seen a lot of difference in Hulk Hogan. And obviously with with the influence that Hogan has, I'd like to have seen more of what was different about him, like more of what came before, before he became who he was. So what did you think of what you saw of the Hogan in this match? What did you notice that was different? What did you, and did you enjoy it? Beyond it just being a novelty. It didn't fully scratch the itch of Hogan in Japan, but it was rather different. Hogan doing a drop toe hold early doors, never see that in most of his WWF matches, if any. Him using a cross face, him, spoiler alert, not winning the match with the leg drop, but winning it with something else. There was like a violent edge to the match as well. Whereas when Hogan fought in the WWE against like these nefarious heels, it was like his power and like his energy from the crowd which got him through. Not him like smashing people through tables. Yes. This is wild brawling Hogan. And it's funny actually... You say the Hogan formula, really that didn't get settled until during his WWF title reign. The final final setup of him being, starts off all guns are blazing, nefarious tactics, maybe on the outside, takes advantage. And then he sells and sells and sells for long stretches of time to the point that he receives the opponent's finishing move, which is the exception to everyone else when they're doing the beatdowns. In, in any other match with a, another regular babyface. Yeah. Gets pinned, hulks up, gets the win. Goes through his methods. The person is always dumbfounded, always punches him until Hogan finally points at them. Three punches, throw him in, run the ropes, big boot, leg drop. And that's how pretty much every house show works, how much most of the pay-per-views work. But... He was still playing around with that formula all the way through his world title run, really, his first world title run. I mean, if you watch his WrestleMania 3 match with Andre the Giant, yeah. I don't think he does the Hulk Cup thing. He doesn't get... He definitely doesn't get 
hit with something and pinned and then kicks out and hulks up and Andre's dumbfounded. He doesn't do that at all in the whole match. It's more of the like, it's more along this lines, I suppose, which is two huge guys hitting each other with everything they've got and who can stand tall at the end. Mm. But the other thing about this match is that Hulk Hogan's period of dominance at the start is too long and too vicious that you could call it babyface shine. Yeah. As you say, he, like, rakes the eyes early on, sends him to the outside, bloodies him, throws him into the table, and then Hansen is the one that kind of makes the comeback. Yeah. The babyface comeback, and gives Hogan a taste of his medicine by beating him up around the announcer's tables. And he does go one step further by smashing Hogan with a chair, but Hogan himself does then bleed as well. Hogan really is like a shark smelling blood because the moment after you see Stan Hansen like bleeding, he sort of like falls out of the ring, but does so in a way where his head's still sort of underneath the bottom rope. And Hogan just stamps the crap out of his face. The Hogan that Japan saw was the guy that was the wild brawler. When he does the technical wrestling stuff, that's when he's in the ring with someone like an Inoki mm. and he's trying to match Inoki hold, hold. And like. Let's make it clear. Hogan, whilst he does do technical moves in Japan, he's not a technical master. No. He wasn't hiding all these things. He has, like, if he has, like, the five moves of Doom when he's doing his Hulk Up routine, he had the five moves of technical wrestling when he had to do the technical wrestling stuff. (laughs) And sometimes he'd bust them out when he was doing his heel run. I remember he did... There was a thing he would do... I remember this was a move that he did on WCW NWO Revenge, where he gets you in the sort of... the Inoki abdominal stretch where he's got his... Headlocked around you, not the octopus hole, but where he's kind of got the arms clasped around. Yeah, and then he pulls it back into a cradle on the mat. The only other time I remember him doing these technical wrestling moves was when he had a match with Bret Hart on a Nitro episode in '98, and it was his way of showing, "Hey, Bret Hart, with your technical wrestling moves, well, look what I can do." And everyone going, "Oh, I've never seen this side of Hulk Hogan before." <laughs> I can imagine Bret was unimpressed yes i would have thought so but yeah that was the thing that baffled me when i was a kid watching it because it was like hogan was being really mean and nasty like even more so like you say when you look at it in hindsight he's like oh he does all these things he'll like choke an opponent with his with his vest or something but it's like in this one he is genuinely giving all these horrible like beating up stan hansen and stan hansen gets revenge and it was so the notion of someone getting revenge on hogan it was always hogan coming back from being wronged either in an angle or in the match itself from some cheating yeah and stan hansen does not have any respect for hogan stan hansen does not like it's a struggle to get there's it's not shoots but it's there's moments where they're both hitting them with stuff expecting them to sell and they're having none of it yeah both of them do that in this match yeah, and obviously in Stan's defence, I don't know how much of Hogan's offence he could actually see. But... <laughs> well, you can feel it. Hogan was hitting him. You know. Can he? I don't know with Stan. <laughs> I don't know if Stan recognises pain like humans do. Well, that's the image he wants to put across. Yeah. And what's funny as well is because obviously Stan Hansen at this time is all King's Road. He had worked in New Japan. In the 80s, it was all... As I've said earlier, you know, Billy Robinson, one of the first ones that, like, all Japan enticed him with more money. In the 80s, they did that as well with Dynamite Kid. And Dan Hansen did wrestle in New Japan before he went to All Japan. He literally ended one tour in 83, I think it was. Secretly stayed in the country, didn't take his return flight that New Japan had booked for him. 
Because the next night he turns up at All Japan's show and attacks Giant Baba <laughs> to signify that he's switched sides. Him and Jimmy Snooker and... The Lex Luger of his day. And in return, New Japan poached Bruiser Brody from All Japan a year or two later. You know, and it's that back yeah. and forth that carried on right through to the point where both sides kind of stopped building their promotions around the native against the Gaijin and instead it was about the students that they gathered through their dojos and it was more of an internal struggle yeah. after that, you know, the four pillars in all Japan and the three musketeers in New Japan and so on. But Stan Hansen was like one of the few, was basically the dying embers of that period of, of Gaijin. You know, and, and in all Japan at this stage, he's essentially similar to what Walter was in the indie scene. He was like the final boss, the final test of the native stars to get, yeah. that was the step can Misawa beat for the natives, he got the Saru to win, but can he also get the... When he did win the Triple Crown, it was against Stan Hansen. Ah, okay, okay. And it was also Terry Gordy as well was the top Gaijin at the time as well. And as I said, the politics of it. <laughs> when he wanted to work with people. <laughs> yes, yes. But also, this was also Gordy did, like, have to... Had that terrible seizure in 91 and never was able to return to what he was after that. Ah... But yeah, like Stan Hansen was the last of that time from that time period that was still going to Japan. And so we're not seeing the strong style technical elements of it. So whilst Brett, whilst Hogan is doing his in Japan moves, Stan Hansen's like, well, I, I don't do this with when I'm doing them. <laughs> yeah. When I start wrestling these guys in Japan, I just lamp them and we go on from there. So Hogan's like, oh, okay, that's what we're doing. So instead we get <laughs> the right, wild... Then. But the wild brawling Hogan was the other great Hogan wrestler. And like I said, that was what he was sort of in his first... You watch him in wrestling guys like Harley Race in WWF in 95. And like in this match, they're doing table spots. They're being thrown through tables and falling mm. through tables. And Japanese tables as well in this one. That's a sign if nothing else. Yeah. But it is funny seeing Hogan putting on his working boots and doing little things. Obviously, when he goes into the ring and when he leaves the ring... He's not doing the... Although he does do the traditional muscle pose at the end and the cupping of the ear. Hogan must pose. Yep. He always makes sure when he's in Japan to do the Ichiban pose, which was his nickname in Japan, Ichiban number one. So we do, so when he comes into the ring the first time, he does Ichiban. When he leaves the ring, he does Ichiban. Whilst they don't do what they do in his subsequent trips to New Japan in the mid-90s, where he goes up against the great Muta and a couple of other famously in the Tokyo Dome, which I know was a match he wanted us to do, but because of the rules that we had, if we wanted to do Hogan after this, it was basically the only one that fit in where there's no New Japan element to it. He would do the leg drop, and they would always be able to kick out of it, so they get that visual, because Hogan never lost in any of his returns to Japan. I don't think he didn't lose to Tenru when they did the dream match a year later with SWS, and instead he teamed with Tenru to win against the Road Warriors, the Legion of Doom. Ah, that would have been fascinating to do, but you're only getting one quarter of Hogan in Japan in that match. Although then again, he probably is in the ring for more than twelve minutes. And also, Hogan against the Road Warriors is fascinating. Talking about my power slam experience, I remember reading a, I think it was an interview with the Dynamite Kid, where he, they show a picture of Hogan to go with a quote of his opinion of Hogan as a wrestler, and it's him in the ring with Hawk from the Legion of Doom. And I'm like, when the fuck did Hulk Hogan <laughs> wrestle Hawk? <laughs> So that's another one we could do later on as well. Life before the internet was wild. Yeah, yeah. You just see these things and it just doesn't quite compute. They, they, it's funny because it's just after the WrestleMania 6 match, which again was Hulk Hogan wrestling slightly different, where it was face versus face, and it's like, 
I remember one of the things in WrestleMania 6 is like, it's Hogan that does the chin lock spot, which is always what the heel does mm. in a match, usually, where they're sort of giving themselves a bit of time to build the cardio up, because God knows the Ultimate Warrior was pretty much done by the time <laughs> he made his entrance in most of his matches, especially in a dome like in Toronto. Yeah. And it is that, that just, it's it's probably his closest to his match with Andre the Giant at WrestleMania 3, I suppose, where it is just these two colossuses. It's the immovable, the irresistible force meeting the immovable object. And just as when they did it with the Ultimate Warrior, the Ultimate Warrior, Hogan missed the leg drop. Yeah. And then Stan goes for the lariat and he hits it. When Stan does hit the lariat, doesn't Hogan roll towards the ropes or something? Yeah, Hogan does get the rope break. Yeah, and it's all these things like Hulk basically tries to cheat and Hansen has none of it with the bull rope. Yeah. Hogan gets the bull rope, tries to choke Hansen with it. And I was like, you're not hitting me doing that with mine. So he just rakes his eyes and starts whipping Hogan with it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, he signals for the lariat, but Hogan hits him on the run. So That was it, sorry. Yeah. He dodges the lariat. And Hansen's going for it again. And this is another one where Hogan doing a move you don't expect. Instead, he blocks the uh, lariat by hitting it across body. Yeah. A flying yeah. cross body. Hopping cross body. I couldn't exactly call it flying, but... Stan Hansen goes for the O'Connor roll into the ropes. Hogan catches the ropes, so he rolls, runs towards Hogan. Hogan gets the big boot, but it's not the big boot as an attacking move, as you would say. It's like a defensive pushing him away because he's in trouble at this point like it's and it's like it's not from a hulk cup he is still fighting from underneath he's trying desperately to hold off Hanson being able to finish him off yeah yeah it's not to put a nail in the coffin it's to create distance yeah yeah and in that distance he's able to catch him with his finisher in japan which is the axe bomber or axe boomba Oh, okay. Which that was Hogan's finish. So whenever he beat, when he beat Muto, when he beat in, in two thousand and three, I think he came back and wrestled Chono and beat him there. Mm. When he beat Tenru, it was never with the leg drop. He'd let them kick out of the leg drop a lot of the time, so they got some legitimacy. Because if people knew, like, well, they've finished, they've kicked out the move that always finishes off his opponents in America. Yeah. So essentially, like Axe Bomber, then kind of becomes his burning hammer or something. His Tiger Driver ninety one. Right. Because the history of the Axe Bomber is that that's how he wins the 83 IWGP League, where they play it almost like a work shoot again. Mm. Where Anoki's on the apron, Hogan rushes, clothesline him, him off the apron, and Anoki goes flying, takes a huge bump, and Hogan doesn't sell it like it's a great, like he's winning. He's like, oh shit, something's happened. Yeah. Sort of like how Owen sells... Shawn Michaels collapsing in that Raw is War match where they did the work shoot of him having a concussion. Right, right, right. And Inoki's not able to answer the count. Essentially, the idea is that he was knocked unconscious by both the Axe Bomber, but also by hitting the impact the of the fall. So, essentially, that's kind of like the Axe Bomber is now like the Inoki killer, you know? And that's what he's uh, able okay. to beat everyone with because it's like, I can, okay, I can lose to the move that beats Inoki. Again, yeah. only by count out because of the politics of that time. And like I said, when Hogan came back a year later, he was already WF champion, and Vince was like, no, 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 no. He's not being pinned by Inoki. So the way that they worked that as well, that it wasn't even Inoki that cost him the title. It was Ricky mm. Choshu interfering, and he hits both Hogan and Inoki with lariats on the outside, and Inoki's able to beat the count in, and Hogan's not. Ah. So with this one, Hogan hits the Axe Bomber on Stan Hansen, and again, because Stan Hansen wants to look strong... He does what Hogan does to the Ultimate Warrior after the Ultimate Warrior hits his splash at WrestleMania 6 and he kicks out at like three and a half. 
Yeah. And he's up straight away and out of the ring and frustrated in the same way that Inoki was frustrated at losing the first fall to Billy Robinson when he'd been in control. Yeah. So it was like Hogan snatching something in a split second rather than just a dominant. I took everything you could take and now I, I'm acting like it hasn't even hurt me. Mm. I've gone super, was it Super Saiyan or Super Saiyan? Super Saiyan. Yeah, super Saiyan. And you can't match that with my just my three punches, my boots and my leg drop. That's all it takes. Well, you couldn't just do that shtick in Japan. Like I said, that's why Ultimate Warrior doing his shtick didn't get over ever in Japan, really. Yeah. Although, funnily enough, the Ultimate Warrior was what Jim Helwig was one of the guys that they were considering, and I think they offered the big Van Vader gimmick too, and he turned it down and it went to Leon White instead. Yeah, the helmet uh, that Vader wore in Japan was designed for, apparently was designed with the Ultimate Warrior in mind. So it's just craziness, this is. It's so out of step and so unusual. And I think it's even kind of unusual for Hogan in Japan, maybe, as well. I mean, I'm sure he would face Stan Hansen in the 80s in those IWGP leagues or MSG leagues and Andre the Giants as well. I mean, Antonio Inoki is the only one to have submission victories over both Hogan and Andre the Giant. That was one thing I forgot to say about the... uh... (laughs) Oh, I bet he loved that. Oh, I'm sure he did. So I don't really have much more to say. I I think this is great fun. I would give it like a three and three quarters to four stars just for a fun wild brawl. It's not like the All Japan main event you're getting with Jumbo Saruta and Misawa and the like, but for what it is, it's a fun... Again, it, it also reminds me of Hansen's tag match with Brody against the Funks. And my conclusion of that yes. is that's kind of to Japanese audiences' perceptions of stereotypes of America. Mm. Like if Americans watched a new Japan, like a junior heavyweight match and they're throwing martial arts kicks and everything. That is almost like you're seeing a live action version of a brawl in a in a Western film. You know? Yeah. With these yeah, two yeah. huge, huge, loud, mustachioed men who look not their thirty four years and forty years age, uh, respectively, in, in the modern era of The obligatory barroom brawl and a spaghetti western, basically, is what they're portraying. Yeah. And they do a good job of it for for the most part. In supposing that way, in those barroom brawls, tables are always getting knocked over. And yeah. The one thing I always didn't like about barroom brawls in cab, I always wanted to do a sketch about this. Was like, because someone gets knocked, uh, like an onlooker gets knocked into it, and then they always turn to the guy who's next to them and punches them. You know, that yeah. person clearly had nothing to do. And I like the idea of like doing a sketch where those two then just try to argue. He's like, "What did I? I didn't do anything. Why did you hit me?" And then them trying to sell things verbally whilst there's a massive barroom roar <laughs> going on around them. Oh, you could have a referee yeah, coming yeah, in and VAR Hogan it. obviously didn't have to work as hard at... Yeah. yeah. So Hogan probably didn't have to work as hard as he did in in America than he did in Japan. That's one of the reasons why he probably preferred going to America, working WWF over Japan, although the schedule was probably a bit harsher. You know, at least you got those breaks in between. But... I bet you Hogan wishes that his finisher in America had been the Axe Bomber. Oh, definitely. When he he deals with those. I think he's shrunk like three inches since his peak height at the time. Yeah. Also, the other thing that surprised me about that match, I will say quickly, is like, again, to like a nine-year-old or to like a seven or eight, nine-year-old who watched this match, uh, Stan Hansen was not the opponent that you typically saw Hogan with, you know? He wasn't... Because when he faced monsters, they were monsters that were as his height or bigger than him or weighed more than him, like mm. Earthquake, like Andre the Giant, like King Kong Bundy. Or they were super jacked, muscly guys, like the Ultimate Warrior or Hercules Hernandez or 
you know, Randy Savage or whatever. You know, they, they had the big physiques, the muscles. Yeah. And Hansen had neither of those things. He didn't have the height and he didn't have the muscles. He was just like a giant square. <laughs> Are you comparing Stan Hansen to SpongeBob SquarePants? Maybe. I mean, it's not but a instead he's like off. Instead it's brick it's brick Stan SquarePants. And also, like, the name Stan Hansen, he, he sounded and, to me, looked more like those jobbers that you saw on Superstars. Yeah. Than, you know, and so it was, again, it was like, what the f- How is this guy? He beat Hogan up more than anyone I'd ever seen beat Hogan up, like, legitimately, without really mm. cheating. He didn't cheat any more than Hogan did in this match, you know? It was so odd to see. Fascinating. Would you say that seeing this match at such a young age... Probably, yeah, you're right. It probably did open my eyes to the notion that there's a wide world out there that I don't know about that much. Because I would have also... Yeah. That would have been around the time, and I wrote a chapter about it in my book, of going to my uncle's house one night. It was very late. It was very quiet. Usually your uncle's and it's a big family get-together. And it mm. wasn't that. I don't know why we were there. I don't know if it was to drop something off. And they had Eurosport on, and the Eurosport was showing like a New Japan match. And I think it was between... Shinya Hashimoto and Scott Norton and again I remember okay. that there was a commercial for later on and there was Hawk but he was in the Power Warriors with a Japanese wrestler who I didn't know yeah. was Kensuke Sasuke uh, Kensuke Sasuke and, and, and so it's like so he's in Japan with a different team and you know and so just knowing there was this other world out there even beyond mm. WCW was just fascinating Maybe this won't mean as much to people now. So when you're nine, like you said, when you're, at this point when you're nine, you don't know this stuff. And it becomes, suddenly gets presented to you. It's so fascinating. Maybe it won't resonate as much now. I don't know. That'll be down to, you know, because kids don't grow up on Hulk Hogan now. Mm. You know? That's that. All of Hulk Hogan's like a weird artifact of a past where someone could just no-sell everyone's finishing move, you know. And... Wrestling has moved on quite a lot since then. So for our next episode, we're going back to Silver Screen Visions, but we're doing a TV series again this time, and it's a full season of a show that was cruelly cancelled ahead of its time, but we're going to remember the good times, and it's, I think, one of the very best things that Netflix has ever produced as original. What are we going to be talking about this time next week, Simon? If, assuming no five-star matches in between. We're going to be talking about the first season of Glow. Starring Alison Brie and Mark Meron and various others. A sort of loose dramatisation of the formation of the real-life promotion Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. Marvellous Mark Meron, as you would pronounce it. I believe it's Mark Maron, Simon, but that's not My bad. My and bad. Betty Gilpin. Also fantastic. And just a great ensemble cast altogether. Oh. But there's, if Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with some uh, glow matches, some Hogan in Japan matches... Some um, examples of good spitting tobacco or bull ropes, if you wanted to mimic Stan Hansen. How can they do so? They can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of names of the wrestlers in this match, which start with the letter H. My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N, as in the A-N at the end of Ichiban. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. If you want to help us, maybe track down that VHS original copy and purchase it on eBay plus a VHS player and see what that's like with American commentary. Then, by all means, go to our patreon.com slash lmtyspod. 
But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.